So last week, Alex went over Judges chapter 2, and he went over Ehud, and then it was actually kind of at the end of that story, there was a footnote of Shamgard. And Shamgard is literally a footnote in the Bible, but that's more of a presence than I have in the Bible and the rest of us. And all word, all of the word is profitable for righteousness, correction, and all these different things. All of God's word is profitable in some way, shape, or form. And so I just wanted to briefly go over this quick passage. My notes are up there, so you're going to see exactly what I see. So you can just focus on that and see what the Holy Spirit does if I bore you. But Shamgard, so let's see what it says. After him was Shamgard, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. So that's his one verse. But there's plenty of profitable word in here for us. This is an ox goad. It's basically a cane with a hook on it. So this man, Shamgard, a footnote in the Bible, was able to kill 600 men with this and deliver the children of Israel from the Philistines. And so what do we see? First off, there's oppression. If they were delivered, they were delivered from something. And back in the day, back in biblical times, and even today, when a neighboring country would come in and oppress somebody and lead them into bondage, they would do two things. We have an example of one of them in Daniel. They, they brought all the smart people over, the smart men and women, and they kind of like integrated or grafted them in and treated them well. But then there's also something that we see here in Judges, that there was harsh oppression, as we'll see later in Judges chapter 4 that they would do. But they would, when the harsh oppression came in, they would actually go and kill all the blacksmiths. They would take all their weapons, and they would give them absolutely no opportunity, and they would probably rub it in their face often, that you have no chance of being delivered unless an act of God, you know, but they knew that in their hearts. And then we see liberation. So what's the spiritual implications of this footnote of the Bible? How many of us have the ability to be led into oppression, whether it be by drugs and alcohol or maybe just a hard family life at home that we think we can never get out of? And then maybe we we listen to the lies of Satan saying, you have no opportunity. I was I'm 29, so I've had plenty of life to waste away and pursue my own desires. And I was an alcoholic for a while. And this might seem stupid, but if some of you remember Amy Winehouse, that Gotta Go Back to Rehab or something song, when she died, she died of an alcohol withdrawal. She was trying to get clean, and she died. And that's something that Satan would tell me when I was like trying to get my life in order. Like, you can't clean up. You're going to die. I got you right where I want you. And that he would just squish every opportunity that I thought that like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna clean up and give my life back to the Lord. But he was always reminding me. But then I did it and the Lord took over and did something miraculous, just like Shamgar. And so we're never too deep for God to do something. We're never too far gone. There's never a place that we can go where we can outrun God by the hole that we've even dug ourselves. But now we're gonna get into the majority of our text which is the story of Deborah. And so we read, When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Heroseth Hagiam. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron. And for 20 years, he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. So we see this Ehud, and the children did evil in the sight of the Lord again. And so why was it when Ehud died that the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord? Were they following Jesus, 
Or were they following God at the time? Or were they following this leader that was put in place? And so the spiritual implications of that is, who are we following? Are we following Aaron? Are we following Rob? Are we following our parents? Are we following Jesus? And then even more importantly than that, why are you following? Are we following out of obligation? Are we following to avoid arguments because my mom and dad say every Sunday, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and I don't want to hear it. Get in the car, we're going to church. Is it because Aaron's a great teacher? I mean, that's not a bad reason because you can learn, but is it because HMS, the high school ministry, does fun activities? Or is it simply the church's slogan? Is it simply Jesus? Are we following Jesus for Jesus? And then what happens when those persons or those reasons are gone? Because Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's always going to be there. He's the beginning and the end. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. So if we're following Jesus for simply Jesus to worship and love him, then he's never going to disappear. But what about when Aaron goes somewhere else? What about when there's a season when, you know, like the high school ministry is not able to do all these awesome things? What happens then? Was it just because we were following Ehud because he was a great leader and he delivered us and we remember all those amazing things? Or is it because we're following Jesus Christ? And Philippians 2.12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in your absence. The New Testament speaks of this too. These people in Philippi were not just being obedient because Paul was there and they were scared of him or because he was a great teacher or because they did awesome things. No, they, they wanted to intimately know Jesus. So when he was gone, they followed Jesus too. When there, maybe that reason for them to follow was gone, they continued to be obedient to God. But then also in this passage, we see the Lord. The Lord sold them. The Lord sold them into bondage. Like, Lord, like, but you're a good, good father, we pray, we sing. But there are repercussions for the actions that we take. There's repercussions for everything we do in life. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. And so if we decide to go off and live our own life after high school, there's going to be repercussions for that. I'm sure some of you already have testimonies of the Lord allowing you because he, he allows you to make decisions and you have free will to make bad decisions Then there's repercussions for that. But then the children of Israel cried out. You know, when push came to shove and they really were at wit's end, they cried out. They said, Lord, you're the only one. We need your help. You know, at the end of the day, at the end of their rope, they knew who they needed to cry out to, and that was God. And the church is filled with people at the Easter service. You saw those people with the signs at the end of their wit, wits and nothing to do, no way that they could do it in themselves. They cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, I did it on my own. I need you to do it. Everybody in this generation was doing what was right in their own eyes. There's repercussions for that, but at the end of their rope, they cried out to the Lord. And then we see Jabin, and Jabin's never actually doing in the, anything in this story. He's just, his name is mentioned. And he has 900 chariots of iron. So this is, you, you can't even fathom that. Like, it would take, it's like 40, 50 to 1 in order to take out a chariot. You've probably seen movies like Ben-Hur and stuff. They have those, like, spikes on the wheels. Like, they just need to drive through the crowd, and they're going to win. That's all they need to do. 
So they're under harsh oppression and, uh, yeah, point B, harshly oppressed. And then, but there's also a leadership thing that we can learn from Jabin. You know, whether you're called to Christian leadership or you're called to sit under Christian leadership, and mind you, as a Christian, you're called to one. You know, if you're called to Christian leadership, are you, are you present? Are you there at the war like David and at the high times? Are you there for the good and the bad through the thick and thin? And if you're sitting under leadership, is your leadership there? Or does, do they just disappear and they're doing their own thing? Or are they willing like Aaron to meet up with you and go to lunch and hang out? You've got his number. So those are just characteristics to look for. Oh, and that's an awesome picture of... Alex couldn't pull up his picture of uh, Jabba the Hutt, but here's a great picture of... It said that... What was his name? The king? Aglar. He was a fat man. That doesn't mean like nominally fat or kind of fat. It means he was giant. There was a sword lost in him, so that's just a fun picture for you guys. But now we get into the meat of the story. And in Judges 4, 4 through 5, we start reading about Deborah. Now Deborah, a prophetess, a wife, the wife of Lipideth, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel and the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So this is a highly disputed passage in many churches and definitely in the culture that we live in. Because sometimes women will misinterpret this passage as it's an opportunity to like, hey, she was a woman pastor. Why can't I be a woman pastor? But then men also use this passage to hold gifted women down. But let's look at the facts. Let's look at God's word. Let's see what it really says here. So Deborah was a prophetess. She heard the voice of the Lord and she spoke what the Lord showed her, as we'll see later on. Okay, so that's fact number one. She heard God's voice in a generation that was decrepit. She was a wife. Okay, so she had a husband. But sometimes we also have to look at what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that she had kids. You know, so, you know, we're going to see that she goes up to these mountains. It's not like she was leaving her kids behind every weekend to go on these long camping trips and bailing on her family. And then it says she was judging in the mountains, and the children of Israel came up to her. She was judging in the mountains, and the children of Israel came up to her. It doesn't say that she was out there trying to get, like, stir up business. Hey, I can, I can do what any, but any other man can do. I can give you guys wisdom. I can give you guys counsel. No, she was, like, going out of her way. These people had to know who she was and be like, okay, there's something different than the men who hang out at the gates because that's where the men would hang out and judge. There's something different about her. She's not looking out for her own intentions. She's actually speaking for the Lord. And the Lord's using her. I want to go to her. I'm going to actually take a long trip. I'm going to go out of my way to hear from the Lord. And then now we want to correct those misconceptions after we know the facts. So Deborah is an example of a pastor that's a woman. Now is, is that here? Was, was she a priest? Was she working in the temple? No, she, she wasn't. And then we know from Titus, Timothy, and Ephesians and, and what the man and the, the man and the female represent, that God has designed specific genders for specific roles. You know, and so if it's a pastor or to have authority over men in teaching or to be a deacon or an elder, that's something that God hasn't designed a woman to do. 
But there's also things that men is not, God has not designed men to do. But then also holding gifted women back. Is this an opportunity for male pastors to hold back gifted women? Women that are just so filled with the spirit and have an intimate relationship and are able to encourage, exhort, prophesy. Absolutely not. It's actually the opposite because Ephesians 4.15 talks about using the gift, gifts, as we talked about in our uh, call to worship. You know, we need to be using our gifts because when each one of us finds our gift, find what God has called us to do, then we're going to be able to see the body grow, physically in numbers, but maybe also spiritually. When we all know what the Lord has gifted us in and we walk in those, that's huge for the body. Every joint that supplies to one another, it talks about. And this should also, to see these women that just love Jesus and are way more gifted than some of us men, that should encourage us to pursue Jesus even more. That should pursue us to be better leaders as men. But what does this mean for a Christian woman who's like super gifted? You know, Genesis 3.15 talks about the curse. And when the curse came in and it says like that the women will desire their husband. And that, that's interpreted as like desire their roles. And so rather than focusing on the sin aspect of it, well, I want to be a pastor or a teacher. What if you focus on the trillions or infinity, the infinite number of things that you can do? Well, I want to be the president. Okay, well, then go to Boston College. Get a PhD in political science and run for president. Doesn't Romans 13 says, says that God appointed all governing authorities? And that, that's Margaret Thatcher of Canada. Or the mayor of Vista. He appointed them to that role. Okay, well, I want to get a PhD in Christian leadership and then be the best Christian you know, women's group leader of all time. Do it. Do it and encourage us men to be better men's leaders. And so that's something that we can immediately take away from this passage. And now I'm going to read this big chunk Judges 4, 6 through 10. Then she said and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you 10,000 men and sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But I will not go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. So we see Deborah here, hearing from the Lord, being true to as a prophetess would be. She heard from the Lord, and she goes out and calls out Barak. Hey, hasn't the Lord said that you should go and do something? Hasn't the Lord said go? She's confronting Barak. And we see this promise revealed in what God has said. I, God, will deliver Jabin into your hand. 
So we see this promise that if she is a true prophetess, it will come to pass. Will it not? Because God's promises are always yes and amen. And Barak says, if you, go, if you, Deborah, go with me, only then will I go. If you, Deborah, go with me, only will I go. And you know, like when you read this, it almost comes across as like a half-hearted obedience or putting out a fleece to the Lord. But I have to be careful to judge him because in Hebrews, he, Barak shows up as one of the faithful leaders of our faith that went before us. So I can't judge him for having a lack of faith or, or having half-hearted obedience because that's what the word of God says. But there is a hint of half-hearted obedience, but can you blame Bar- Barak for desiring to have the voice of the Lord go with him? You know, if we were gonna go into battle, if we were gonna go out evangelizing, wouldn't we want a spiritual leader to go with us, even if it's just to be praying for us in the background? You know, if we're going to go out and do the talents challenge, which you guys did last year, don't you want like Aaron to go with you? Don't you want somebody that that knows God a little bit more than you or has a a strong relationship or hears his voice to come with you? And can we blame Barack for that? Like I, I can't because I would be in that same situation. And then there's also a prophecy revealed. No glory for you and Cesaro will fall into the hand of a woman. And so we see that there's a promise. And it's super clear. So let's move on to Judges 4, 11 through 16. Now Heber the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near a terebinth tree in Zainam, Zainam, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Heroseth Hagium and the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera, all of his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Heroseth Hagiam. And the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So we see this Heber. Remember this Kenite because he's going to come up later. But Sisera prepares for battle. He hears from these people, hey, he's going down there. It's time to go meet him. And then Deborah says, this is the day which the Lord has delivered and has not the Lord gone out before you. So she's walking in and being faithful in what the Lord has shown her as a prophetess. And we know from Romans 12, it says, if you teach or if you prophesy, prophesy according to your faith. If you teach in teaching, if you exhort, then exhort. If you have the gift of giving, then give. If you lead, lead diligently. Mercy, be merciful. So we're supposed to walk in our gifts. So she's, all she's doing is walking in her gifts. And sometimes she gets a bad rap for that. But she's being faithful to the Lord. And that's what really matters. And then, do we walk in the gifts and what the Lord has shown us? You know, when we, we find out our gifts, when we take steps of faith, if we're called to worship, brought up this morning, do we do it? 
Do we worship the Lord? Do we lead, leading people in worship, if that's our gift, do we do that? If we're able to teach, do we teach? If we have the gift of exhortation, are we consistently walking in exhortation? Because like I said before, that's what's gonna bring real growth to the body. Some 10-point scheme to get more people in the church isn't gonna do it. But if we all walk in our individual gifts, then there will be physical and spiritual growth to the body. And then we see the Lord routed or confused and alighted or came off. So the Lord routed these chariots. He confused them. In the next chapter, it's a, it's a long song by Deborah that we won't be going over. But there's hints to God bringing down water from heaven and it raining. And the, geog- the geography of that place was a place where if it rained, it would just go muddy. And so these 900 chariots were just brought to a halt. And then it says that Jabin alighted, a word that nobody's ever used since this translation was translated, alighted. He got off being the coward that he probably was because without his chariot and without his iron, he was scared and he, he ran. And so Judges 4, 17 through 22 says, However, Sisera had fled away on foot of the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the door of the tent. And if any man comes and inquires of you and says, is there any man here? You shall say no. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove a peg into his temple, and it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. And then, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent and lay Sisera dead, Sisera dead with a peg in his temple. So we see Sisera and Jael. And something that we can learn from Jael, this, this lady that was just hanging out. She was just in her tent. She was aware of an enemy. She knew who Sisera was. She obviously drew him into the tent while he was running. She knew this is the only place between the battleground and his home. So she was aware of an enemy. She dealt harshly with that enemy. And Jael was resourceful with what she had. She had a blanket. She had milk. She had a hammer and a nail. You know, like it's it's almost clear because he says, hey, do you have any water? Obviously, she had water. She's living in the desert. They lived off of, they would have needed water to stay hydrated. But she's like, here, here's this heavy blanket. You know, like when you lay in bed, some, me, at least me, like that heavy blanket just like gets me ready to go to bed. And so she's like getting him prepared. Hey, here's some warm milk. Puts babies to sleep. I mean, it probably will put him to sleep too. Oh, I got that old hammer and nail in the back of the tent. I should go bring that out once he falls asleep. So she's like just preparing him to pass out so that she can take over. And he's been running in mud probably, so he's super exhausted. And so 
How does that translate to our lives? Are we aware of the enemy? Are we aware that Satan wants to come and steal, kill, and destroy us? Are we, we aware that there is a, a spiritual battle going on? I know that for me in my early Christianity, I just was like, nah, I don't really believe that. Like, I believe in Satan and the devil, but I'm not going to let him get to me. Like, how ignorant is that of me to think that, that there isn't a spiritual battle going on, that he doesn't want holiness for me. He, he just wants to hold me back. And doesn't Matthew 5.30 deal harshly with the enemy and sin? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And we know that that doesn't mean literally cutting off your hand because you still have a heart issue going on. But aren't we supposed to deal harshly with sin and the enemy? And are we resourceful with what we have? We have confession. You know, like when we have a sin, do we just hold it in? You know, when Satan tells us, just keep it to yourself. Just bury it deep down inside. Don't let anybody know. No, we're supposed to confess that to one another, as James says, and be healed. Do we fight back with truth? When Satan comes in, do we walk in the steps of Jesus and do we fight back with truth? If he's telling you, you know, he's giving you lustful thoughts, do you say, for the will of God is my sanctification and I'm supposed to flee youthful lusts? How do you fight back from those things? No, I'm in the world, not of it. I don't take part in that. Hey, they're having so much fun. You should go to that party. No, sin is only fun for a season. I won't give in. Are we fighting back with truth as Jesus did? John chapter 13 says that he is our only example. He's our example. I've left you an example that you should do as I have done. Are we walking in that example of truth that Jesus set? And then Ephesians 6 also talks about, oh, the spirit of God. Are we trusting in the spirit to live out through us? Are we praying, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your strength. But then also the armor of God in Ephesians 6.14. Do we actually claim that when we're in a spiritual battle and the enemy is coming in? We know that there's the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, like we said before, in prayer. Are we praying about this battle? I know that I forget to do that. Like getting married is... For some of us, it's like tough, it's hard, but it's so fruitful and amazing. But like in my praying about that with my wife, for my wife, and yeah, that translates to two of you in this room, so I probably should have came up with a better example. I sincere apologies. But with you in high school, I'm sure that there's a plethora of things that the enemy is just throwing at you all day, every day. You know your sin better than I. Are you claiming the things? Are you using the resources that we have as JL did? And then we see this prophecy fulfilled like we were talking about earlier. No glory for you, Barak. Sisera will fall into the hand of a woman. So we see that Deborah, just like in Romans, she was prophesying to the proportion of faith that she was given. She prophesied. She spoke what the Lord knew was going to happen. And then guess what? It came to pass. And then now we finish this story with Judges 4, 23 through 24. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So who subdued Jabin and where? And also, who got the glory for subduing him? You know, no glory will go to a man for 
Cicero will fall into the hand of a woman. But who really gets the glory in this? Who brought down the potential rain that slowed down the chariots in a battle that they didn't have a chance of winning? You know, it's like going to Jericho with a bunch of trumpets and walking around it seven times. Who got the glory for that? It's so obviously God. And he's just making it so clear. I'm the one that you need to reach out to. I'm the one that can deliver you from whatever you are struggling with. But who subdued Jabin and where? God did it publicly. Publicly. And then the fulfilled promise from verse 7. How faithful is God to accomplish his will? 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. God can't deny himself. So even when we're lacking faith, when we cry to the Lord, Lord, I don't have faith right now. Please increase my faith. He will be faithful. And we know that there's just this turning down, this spiraling down. The book of Judges just keeps getting worse and worse and worse through this um, cycle that they go through that Aaron has the picture of. He's added in his other teachings. Not right now, but like it just keeps getting worse and worse because they keep repeatedly doing the same thing. But no matter what, God is going to be faithful. He's going to accomplish his will. And then we see that the people, it says, And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. And there's almost like this hint of it's because of circumstances. It's because they were seeing the Lord accomplish things. It wasn't because their faith was growing in the Lord. And then we know that right after this, they're going to fall right back into that downward spiral once again. And I think I was talking to Aaron before about a a teaching I'd heard, and it might have been Ben Corson. Now, God wants to be the God of the mountains and the valleys. Even when we're lacking faith, he wants to be our God. He wants us to cry out to him in the good times and in the bad times. Be thankful for the good times and the bad times. And yeah, it's a lot harder to be thankful when things are hard. But so we see these two women who are just so mightily used by God. And so ladies, like, do what the Lord is putting upon your heart. Don't ever be worried about what the Lord is calling you to do. Because these women made it. It was, it'll always be told. Same with Mary. Whatever the Lord has put upon your heart, go for it, do it. He's gonna just do so many great things through you. And then men, when you see them and you're like, whoa, she's really being used by God. Be encouraged by that. Allow that to encourage you. Don't hold them down or hold them back. Like, encourage them to be more used by God. And so that's the text. We're not going to go over the song, that Deborah's song in, in chapter 5. It's, um, it's not incredibly pertinent to the teaching today. But I'm going to pray us out. And then, Aaron, do you want us to do small groups? Okay, sweet. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And we thank you for the story of Deborah and Jael. And we thank you that you use these mighty women of valor to accomplish your will. And then in the New Testament, God, you, you liberated women even further from oppression. Lord, and you love each one of us. There's no downcast. There's no footnotes in history. We're all important to you, God. And you desire to use us, to give us gifts 
and to use us if we're willing. And so, Lord, I pray that we would take these exhortations of Scripture, apply them to our lives, allow your Spirit to speak to us and encourage us through small groups. And Jesus, we thank you for salvation, the salvation that you've given us. In your name, amen.